We're going to invite uh, Dad up. Thank you, musicians. Uh, Steve Montgomery is my dad. He has been on the mission field now for, uh, I don't know, 30 years. So while he's coming up, if you will look around and ask the person next to you, where is Atotonilco? Can you say that? Try it. Say, where is Atotonilco? You'll find out in just a minute. Uh, just to clarify a few things, if you climb in your car in the parking lot here and you drive 2,500 miles, you get to the border. And when you get to the border, you're halfway to Atotonilco. So I would suggest that instead of doing that, you go get in an airplane and you can be there in a few hours. Just my recommendation. And also to clarify, it was stated up here that uh, I've been as a missionary in Mexico for umpteen years. What that means is the umpteen part. I started out as a teenager, so that's why I still look very young and vital and so on. Uh, you know, what a, what a fantastic church. Now think about this. This is my first time coming here, and they asked me to speak. Uh, you know, this is great. I mean, well, how can you... How can you beat that? And this is the church, probably the only church I've ever heard of, that took over a winery and began to use it to make new wine. Is that good? Huh? What, how great is that? All right. Well, I think we've got, are we set up to go? Okay. Well, we're going to learn today some life lessons about Jacob, Lord willing. Uh, but I, I think I need to clarify something first. A lot of effort is put in by commentaries and preachers and so on, to clean up Jacob, you know, make him look better, you know, beautify him a little bit, sanitize him, you know. Well, he did this, but it's really not as bad as it looks, and we need to understand the cultural background, and yeah, it, what he did wasn't really good, but he did it with a good attitude. He had a pure heart, and you know, I think we do a great disservice to the Bible by that, you know. We, we polish these people up, when, in fact, the Bible is the story of common people who are clumsy, clueless, stubborn, sinful, selfish. In other words, they're pretty much like us, you know. And uh, uh, it's the story of how God took them and used them and transformed them. That is a message of hope. I mean, I can identify with that. You know, uh, you know the, the Catholic Church, we, of course, working in Mexico, you know, we deal with Catholics all the time. They have these, these um, stories of the lives of the saints, you know, and you read them and it's like, you know, when, uh, when Toribio was uh, just a, a baby, six months old, an infant in his crib, he couldn't sleep unless he had a picture of Saint Onofre up over his bed, you know. And then when he was two, when they were opening all the Christmas presents, they were giving him all these great presents, but he just kept crawling over to the other, walking over it too, to the other side of the room so that he could be close to the picture of uh, St. Thomas, you know. And then when he was nine years old, they chose him to be the goalie of the soccer team, but he kept sneaking out in the middle of the soccer game to go over to the chapel and spend time just contemplating the beauty of the statues there, you know. Read it, I mean... This guy was more spiritual than Jesus before he was 10. You know, I mean, how, can we, how do I identify with that? It's like so totally ludicrous. And then you pick up the Bible and you find people like uh, 
Abraham, you know, great man. God spoke to him, and then he, he, things get a little tough, and he beats feet down to Egypt, and when he gets down to Egypt, he tells his wife, tell everybody you're my sister. You know, what is that about? Lie. You know, he didn't even lie himself. He lied himself and got his wife to lie, too, and got himself in terrible trouble, you know? I mean, it, you read the stories about guys like David. God says, this is a man after my own heart, and yet David had some serious errors. And I'm so glad for those things. Anybody else glad for those things, you know? We read these stories, and these guys were just all just perfect, and everybody was just no problems at all, never any doubts, never any battles. Where would we fit in that story, you know? So we've got a lot we can be thankful for, you know? Um, yeah, you know, God brags about how he... Did you know, you know, God can brag. You know that, right? I mean, if you and I brag, that's prideful. You know, God can be proud. He has no parallel, you know? God can brag. He can boast. And he boasts, look at this uh, uh, portion of the scripture. Listen to, listen to God's heart in this. For the Lord's portion is his people. You want to know what I mean by his people? He says, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. Isn't that wonderful? Waste howling wilderness. And he led him about and he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye as an eagle stirs up her nest and flutters over her young and spreads abroad her wings and takes them and bears them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him. Hear that? And there was no strange God with him. He made him to ride on high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. I'm going to give you the the um, uh, authorized Steve Montgomery version of that, you know. Um, give me a, the next one here. He's, God is saying, I found him out there in the desert, in the waste howling wilderness. And I led him, and I instructed him, and I kept him. I alone led him. There was nobody else out there. This does not, I will not give credit to any other God. I will not allow credit to be given to any other God. And I made him learn to take the sweet out of difficult, hard situations. God says, I did that. That's my inheritance. So, when we make these stories, you know, like sort of pretty, we're actually taking away from the glorious things that God does. So today, okay, today we're going to look at uh, Jacob the way the Bible presents him. Uh, you know, just uh, how God took this man and taught him to drink sweet honey out of hard lessons. Okay, there's one other thing. We don't have a lot of time. That is to say, I probably will preach for an hour and a half or two hours, but still. Anyway, we don't have a lot of time, so we're only going to take this period of time from when he flees his home to when, 20 years later, he goes back or what we can call the Laban years, when he was with his sweet Uncle Laban. But let's pray. Father, we want to learn from you. We want to learn how you taught Jacob. We want to see that. 
but especially we need to see ourselves in this. I, I look at Jacob and I just, I see me. I just see the lessons that, that I need to learn and the lessons that you're bringing to bear in my life. And uh, Lord, open our eyes today that we can see you, get a fresh glimpse of Jesus, and get a fresh glimpse of the Lord Jesus working in our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. All right, let's get a little background here. Background. Uh, first of all, uh, Isaac, uh, he was married at 40. His wife was sterile, so he prayed. He asked the Lord to give him a child, and God did. 20 years later, at uh, 60 years old, his wife conceived, and uh, he was going to have a son. So then at that time, God spoke to, to his wife, uh, Rebecca, uh, possibly through a prophet, not real clear on how God spoke, but told her, you're going to have twins. And the older one is going to serve the younger. Now, in a patriarchal society, that's really strange. Normally, the firstborn, he's the principal inheritor. He becomes the head of the clan. So before they're even born, God says, prior to birth, God says, this, is, this one's chosen. This is election. God knows the end from the beginning. Uh, there are no surprises for God. He chooses according to his foreknowledge. And in this case, he clearly chose, of the two, the more difficult of the two. I mean, look at the story. Esau, not a great guy, but of the two, you know. If I were God, I would have chosen Esau over Jacob. Looks like less trouble. So, anyway, uh, God chose him. And... Dad knows that. Isaac knows that, knew that, knew what God had said, but still Isaac had his favorite son, and his favorite was not Jacob. Uh, Jacob had, a, had to go through rejection. Uh, frankly, not totally without reason. I mean, the Bible tells us that from the time they were fairly young, Esau was a good hunter, he was a guy who loved the outdoors. He was a man who liked to work in the field. He was a kind of a man's man. He was rough and he was tough and he was hairy and he was, you know, he was a man's man. Jacob, on the other hand, you know, he was a quiet guy. He liked staying at home. He liked cooking. He was, basically, he was a mama's boy. He said, oh, I don't want to go out there in the field. I might get burrs in my Shoes, you know. I, oh, I don't, I, you know, are you sure there aren't any animals out there? What if I get bit? So, you know, uh, I, I understand Isaac. I mean, this isn't right that he would have a, a preference, but, you know, it's not so totally surprising. But also, there's this little side thing in chapter 25, verse 38, that says, tells us something more about uh, Isaac. My margin says, Isaac loved Esau because, literally, venison was in his mouth. Esau put food in his mouth, put the kind of food he liked. So he said, okay, you're my favorite. You know, you're making me fat. That's what I want. Okay, I want to be real clear about something. When parents have favorites, it always leads to conflict. Mom, Dad, if you have a favorite son 
or daughter, repent. Uh, ask God to give you his love for all of your children. That doesn't mean you'll necessarily be pleased with all the choices that all your children make, but love your children equally. It is not a legitimate motivator to show more love to this one so that the other one will shape up. That's not a tool God uses. Having a favorite often sends both of the kids to hell. I'm sorry to say that, but you know, what happens is the favorite, he thinks, hey, I can do no wrong. And since he can't do anything wrong, he doesn't need a Savior. Whereas the rejected one, he says, well, you know, apparently there's nothing I can do to please Dad, so I might as well give up altogether. And if I can't please Dad, I probably can't please God either, so I might as well just rebel. Don't have favorites. Isaac and Rebecca both had favorites, and it led to conflict. So what happened? Jacob took advantage of his brother, deceit. He stole his birthright. Now, that's the privilege to be the head of the clan and the primary inheritor. It's interesting, by the way, that the way he did that was about food. Esau comes in, and he's hungry, and Jacob says, I'll give you food for your birthright. And Esau says, what good is a birthright going to do me? That's years from now. You know, what I need is food right now. Something about that rings with what we read about Isaac earlier, doesn't it? Isaac liked Esau best because he put venison in his mouth, and Esau ended up selling his birthright because he'd learned from his dad that the most important thing is, what are you eating? What keeps you happy at the moment? So, he, uh, he took advantage of uh, his brother and stole the birthright. And then he lied to his dad, tricked his dad into giving him the best blessing. So this guy is not only a mama's boy, he's a trickster, he's a schemer, he's a manipulator. And then, listen to this, when things got hot and... He had problems with his brother and dad. You know what he did? He ran away. Let's see, where are we? One more. Give me one more there. Yeah. He took off. He said, uh, you know, I'll just leave mom holding the bag here. He's a coward. He's not, just, he's not just a sissy. He's not just a manipulator. He's not just a schemer and a trickster and a liar. He's a coward. I mean, this is not a great guy. But then, then something happened that nobody but God could have forecast. Out there, away from his beloved tents and his campfire and his mama to protect him, out there he has an encounter with God, which I'm calling his conversion. I realize that's a New Testament term, but I think it's the closest we can get. Here is something that changes Jacob. He makes a vow here to God. Uh, here he passes from knowing about God to meeting God. He goes from knowing, uh, from believing in God to believing God. And he makes this vow. He says, you'll be my God. Now, 
Admittedly, read it for yourselves, it's not a great vow. I mean, he put a whole lot of conditions, a whole lot of ifs, if you'll bless me and if you'll help me, and then he, you know, he puts in his part, then you'll be my God and I'll pay for it too. I'll, I'll give you 10% of all I owe. So it's, it's not a great promise, but uh, God met him where he was. And God said something to him. Uh, God gave him a promise. I want, I want to look at that promise for a moment. I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Now at the time when Jacob heard that, I'm sure he thought, wow, what a great promise. That means God's going to change all the circumstances and he's going to get in there, he's going to fight right beside me and he's going to kick everybody out of my way. But that wasn't exactly what God said. What God said is... Uh, I am going to change you, and I'm going to turn you into a man. I'm not just going to turn you into a man, but I'm going to turn you into a man of God, and I will do whatever it takes to get that done. And I'm not giving up until it's done. Well, so Jacob is about to uh, enter school. God is going to school Jacob. Uh, that school, by the way, is referenced in uh, Proverbs 15:31. Check this out. The ear that hears the reproof of life abides among the wise. You want a uh, translation of that? Okay, here you go. Just right in your margin right over here. Welcome to the school of hard knocks, son. That's what it means. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to use the circumstances of life to teach you to be smart, to be wise. I'm going to use the circumstances of life to change you into the man that you need to be. So, before we talk about lesson one, we're going to talk just about a few lessons that he learned in these 20 years that he's away from home. Uh, you should meet uh, the faculty of this school, or at least uh, one of the principal instructors. It's Uncle Laban, good old Uncle Laban. Uh, new archaeological studies, along with uh, philological studies and some uh, highly technical uh, DNA markers, have confirmed now that in the entire Middle East, there was only one man who was more of a deceiver and a schemer than Jacob, and that's Uncle Laban. So God says, I know exactly where I'm sending you. He smoothed the road. He said, you need to spend some time with your uncle. He's got some special things. Okay. All right. So God's sending the schemer to learn under the master schemer. So lesson one. Lesson one. Falling in love. Oh, that's so great so wonderful he gets there to Laban he meets Laban's daughter immediately falls for her and uh, he's smitten by her he wants this woman to be his wife now love is a great thing but love just you know natural love uh, is not so big a leap for Jacob still uh, love can be very self-serving very self-centered you know, it's a question, what can I do to make her notice me? What can I do to make him notice me? You know, what can I do to make her like me? 
In uh, Atotonilco, there's a lady in the church. By the way, Atotonilco is an hour and a half southeast of Guadalajara. So when you fly down, fly to Guadalajara and we'll pick you up. Uh, a lady in the church in, uh, in uh, Atotonilco, grown woman, grown children. But uh, you know how she got married? This guy got interested in her, but she was dating him and another guy. She was seeing both of them, and she couldn't really decide. So you know what this guy did? He went and opened a bank account with 100 pesos. And then when they gave him a savings account, then when they gave him the savings account book, he wrote in there, 1,000 pesos, 1,000 pesos, 1,000 pesos, 1,000 pesos, 1,000 pesos, you know, as though he'd deposited all this money. And then he takes her out one day, and he reaches into his pocket to pull out his handkerchief, and accidentally this thing falls out, and he says, oh, would you pick that up for me? And she sees that it says bank account, and she opens it up. She says, what's this? He says, well, it's money I'm saving for when I get married. You know, I mean, I'll need money for when I get married. She married the guy. She said, oh, this is great. What a great guy. He's thinking about this. This is so great. After he got married, he said, I didn't really. I only have 100 pesos. And by the way, I need that out. You know, we need to close the account. You know, love can be very, very selfish and self-serving. But nevertheless, it can be scheming and it can be manipulative. But for Jacob, it is a step. Because now, even just a little bit, he's thinking and caring, give me the next one there, thinking and caring about somebody else, somebody besides himself. A little bit, but it's a step. It's a small step because he cares, he cares about her for himself, and he's only really thinking about her in relation to himself. But it is, after all, only lesson one. So, Jacob goes to Uncle Laban. He says, uh, Laban, I'll work for you seven years to pay the dowry for Rachel as my wife. And Laban, this sweet, generous, kind, compassionate uncle says, you got a deal, no problem. I'll take seven years out of your life. So, Jacob begins working on lesson two. Here's lesson two, working for something. Hmm. Working for something. Jacob didn't really work in the field, and he, uh, uh, when he wanted, when he really wanted something, uh, he got it by going to mommy, or by tricking somebody out of it. And now he's learning the value of hard work, of sweat and effort and tedious continuance with calluses and blisters. You know, in other words, put it another way, he's learning. The value of things. All right, question. How many of you remember when your mom said, money doesn't grow on trees? Anybody? Yeah, you know? Okay. Okay. You know what mama was really saying there? She was saying, you need to learn the value of things. Now let me say the real obvious thing. When God said, watch close now, this is really profound theology. When God said, Thou shalt not steal. Number one, what he was saying is, he believes in personal property. Number two, God was saying, not everything is yours. Wow, this is really deep, you know. If everything was yours, there wouldn't be any way to steal. God is saying, 
not everything belongs to you. I just read a quote from a, from a famous uh, economist who asked the question, just how much of what someone else earned is your fair share? You know, think about it now. Just how much of what somebody else earned is your fair share? Not everything belongs to you. Not everything is just for you. Not everything is just for me. Jacob needs to learn the virtue of good, hard work. Lamentation says it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. That doesn't mean, you know, and then when he gets 25, then he throws off the yoke and he, he doesn't work anymore. It means from his youth, he learns the value of things. A young man got saved in Totonilco uh, just a few months ago, 18 years old, been, uh, you know, the whole sloppy story of drugs and all of that business. And he's gotten saved, you know, and he's excited about the Lord. He's already read through, you know, Matthew and Mark and John, and, and he's about halfway through Luke and of course, he's already read some in Revelation. I don't know, what, what is the attraction? I don't know, but anyway, he's already read about half of the book of Revelation, you know, and uh, tried to figure out, you know, what are these scorpions and all that. Anyway, but he's excited about the Lord. So he comes to me and says, here he is, you know, maybe two and a half months old in the Lord. I want to go to Bible school. I said, great, because I want to be a missionary. I said, great, that's wonderful, but not now. You know what you need to learn now? You know what the lesson you need to learn now is? Good, hard work over a long period of time, patient continuance in doing what needs to be done when you feel like it and when you don't. If you'll learn that, then further ahead, you know, there's after, you know, lesson two doesn't come to you get lesson one. Lesson three doesn't come to you get lesson two. How successful do you think it would be if we tried to teach kids trigonometry in kindergarten? You know, they're still going, you know, how do I hold the pencil? This is not the time. You don't send a guy that's two and a half months old in the Lord off to Bible school. You know, you teach him the importance of going to church every Sunday, of going to work every Monday. You know, once he gets that down, then there's some other things he can learn. But... Jacob here, at this point in his life, needs to learn hard work. You know why? Because it's good for us to learn the value of what we have, of what God's provided for us. And you learn that through hard work. Another thing, thankfulness. You cannot learn thankfulness apart from hard work. As I say, it can't be done. It's so important because Paul says in Romans that in when, as he's describing in chapter 1 the way that society degenerates, a society degenerates, he says, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. They weren't thankful. Thankfulness is really important. And thankfulness is something that we learn as the fruit of hard work. So, Jacob is working now seven years in order to have something he wants. He wants to marry Rachel. Seven years are up. 
He says, I've worked my seven years. I'm ready now. I want to marry Rachel. So Laban calls together all his friends and says, let's have a big party. I don't know if it went on maybe, you know, two, three days. I don't know. But, but anyway, they're partying there. They've got, oh, this is great, you know. And, and it gets dark. And at some point, Rachel slips away, you know. And people notice that she's slipping away, you know. And then, uh, then it, gets, it gets dark and the fires are dying down and people are starting to leave. And Jacob goes into his tent to spend the first night with his bride. And he wakes up in the morning, and it isn't Rachel. It's Leah. Oh, no. He goes to Uncle Laban. He says, what have you done? I worked all this time for Rachel, and you gave me Leah. And you know what he said? He said, look, I, I don't know how things are done where you're from, but around here, we have to respect the rights of the firstborn. Now, it's exactly, uh, refresh my memory. How did Jacob end up there with Laban? Oh, yeah, it's because he deceived his brother and passed him over in order to get the rights of the firstborn. So now, you know, Uncle Laban is explaining to him that you have to respect the rights of the firstborn. So what are we saying here? Okay. Lesson number three in God's school of hard knocks is getting patient and growing. Uh, Uncle Laban, you know, says, oh, but listen, if you, if you really want to marry Rachel, I mean, Leah is fine, but if you really want to marry Rachel, no problem. Just work for me another seven years. Just, you know, just work for me another seven years. And Jacob, I'm sure, Bible doesn't say this, but I'm sure Jacob was so mad that he wanted to kill him. And then he remembered his brother Esau, who said, as soon as my dad passes away, I'm going to kill Jacob. And all of a sudden, it changes the whole perspective. And what he's learning there is this, learning to think, oops, learning to think about others. In other words, what I mean is, uh, you remember when your mom said, how would you like it if somebody did that to you? Anybody hear that? You've never heard that before, huh? Mom has never... Uh, what, am I the only one with a mother around here? Come on now. Your mother or your dad never said, well, how would you like it if somebody did that to you? What mom, what dad was saying there is, you need to learn to think about somebody else. Jacob's mother never said that to him. Or if she did, he made a point of not hearing it. So, learning to think about others is a basic life lesson. As Christians, Paul says to us in the book of Philippians, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That means watch each other like a hawk to see if there is a way that we can help and bless the people around us. But even more basic than that, just for those who don't even know the Lord, the law, the Ten Commandments, has things like, it demands things of us, demands that we think of others, things like, don't steal, don't lie about your neighbors, don't kill. By the way, don't kill includes, you know, thinking about others, you know, don't kill them. You, you got that, right? It means thinking about how what you do affects other people. From Adam on, man is self-centered. 
He has to be told. He has to be taught to think about others. And so we live in this, this uh, thin, tenuous little veneer which we call society, which we call civilization. And it, it, it looks pretty good, but it's so thin. And through the years, Satan is just scraping away at this. And we begin to see holes, and we begin to see cracks in what is civilized behavior. One key tenet of civilization is you've got to consider how what you do will impact others. <laughs> and we're seeing that in our time, in this society at least, we're seeing that disappear. By the way, just lest there be any confusion, it's a little side thing, doesn't have to do with Jacob, but lest there be any confusion, that is not true of the church. We do not live in some thin, tenuous little thing that holds us together. We don't live in a society. We don't live in a civilization. We live in a kingdom. And our king is still alive. And our king actually accompanies us and lives in us. So this is, I mean, this is a benevolent dictatorship at its extreme. You know, he's with you every minute of every day teaching you how to walk in this kingdom. And this kingdom will not fall apart. Oh, that is glorious because as we look around, societies do. In fact, society in general, the whole concept of society could very well blow away, crumble, disintegrate right before our very eyes. Okay, but getting back to Jacob. First of all, he had to learn caring about somebody beside himself, but now he's learning to begin more broadly to think of others. So, he works another seven years, marries Rachel, and then he makes a deal with Laban. Uh, look, I'll watch your sheep, and here's the deal. The ones that are born, the white ones will be mine, and the colored or spotted or speckled ones, no, excuse me, the white ones will be yours, and the colored, spotted, speckled ones will be mine. Uncle Laban says, great, what a great deal. And then you know what he did? He went through the flocks and he took all these speckled and uh, ring-striped and, and uh, uh, colored ones and he took them three days' journey away. You know, so there'd be no chance that there could be any problem with Jacob finding a, uh, a ring-striped or, or uh, spotted or colored uh, ram. Oh, that's okay. It's Jacob. He's got a plan. Oh, the schemer. He's thinking about it. He's got the way to take care of this. Yeah. All right. I'm going to get revenge now. So he takes some poles and he scrapes them in different places, makes spots on them. And then when the sheep come down uh, to the watering hole, he puts these in the watering hole on the theory that if the sheep see these spotted poles, they'll have spotted lambs. That's ridiculous. We know that is wrong, but he didn't know that was wrong. But we know for fact that that's wrong. But 
The amazing thing is it worked. And Jacob is saying, boy, did I get him this time. Man, he's not the master schemer anymore. I took care of this. God allowed that. God actually worked so that Jacob could pat himself on the back and say, boy, I tell you, (laughs) some of my schemes really work out. Until Uncle Laban came and changed it and said, no, I've changed my mind. The spotted ones are mine and the white ones are yours. In six years, he did that ten times. Every time there were more of the color that Jacob was with, whether white or spotted, Laban just said, I changed my mind. Ten times. You know what this lesson's called? Getting sick and tired of deception. Now, I've thought about this a lot, and I finally came up with a, a little bit technical, but technical term for this. It's called getting sick and tired of deception. That's it. I know we don't have a whole lot to say about this. He just, he got full up to here. The schemer got sick of schemes. He learned what it feels like and then what it feels like and then more of what it feels like until he got sick and tired. Full up with cheats and with cheats. To the degree that finally uh, he decided to leave. You know, something else he learned, by the way, is that he also, he learned he didn't need it because every time his schemes went bad and Laban changed things, God worked and blessed him till finally he realized, I don't need the schemes. But after he'd been there 20 years, he decided, it's time for me to go home. Uh, So, he uh, takes his wives, and he takes his, at this point, 11 kids, two wives, and he uh, sneaks off. I mean, this is still Jacob. This is still the guy that snuck away from his brother when his brother was bad at him. So, he waits until Laban is three days' journey away, and he packs up his things quietly, and with his tail between his legs, his head hunkered down, he sneaks off. <laughs> and somebody tells Laban, of course. Uh, so Laban hears about it and immediately gets together all his relatives, uncles, aunts, everybody he could get, all the strong men in the village and a few of the strong ladies too. And they go after him. They pursue him. And they catch up with him. And when he's within eyesight of him, God speaks to Laban in a dream. And he says, be careful what you say, that you don't say anything to Jacob, either good or evil. Either good or bad. I don't want you to say anything bad to him because I told him to go back. And he's going back because I told him. But I don't want you to say anything good to him either because I don't want you to encourage him as though sneaking away is the way I wanted this to work. And you know, finally... You read the story and it's just so good. Finally, Jacob stands up to Laban. It's a little late, you know, but he stands up to him. He says, you know, I worked among you. I did all this labor. You tricked me about my wives. Then I worked for you all this time. You changed my wages ten times. 
If any sheep died in the field, I never brought it to you. You told me I had to pay for it. I took care of all your sheep all this time, and now you're accusing me of stealing from you? He finally stood up to him. You know, he's, he's got some moxie now. He's starting to turn into somebody that you can appreciate, you know. But Jacob's got a bigger problem. One right ahead. How will his brother Esau receive him? You remember when he left, Esau said, I can't wait till dad dies. When dad dies, I'm going to cut my brother's throat. Now he's going back. Now, 20 years have gone by, but still, he hasn't heard a word from him. So he sends off some of his servants. Go ahead and hunt down Esau and tell him I'm coming. And the servants go, and they come back, and they say, Oh, yeah, we found Esau, and he was so excited to hear you're coming. He's coming to meet you, and he's bringing 400 men with him. This was not good news. The Bible says that Jacob was terrified. So, you know, this is the schemer. Got to come up with something. He begins to scheme. I know. I'll send him a present. No, no, make that, make that two presents. No, make that four presents. No, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send him a flock of this, and I'm going to send him a flock of that, and I'm going to send him a bunch of these, and I'm going to send him the... I'm going to, send, I'm going to flood this guy with presents. You know, goats and camels and cattle and donkeys, and maybe I can appease him. Huh. Next day, Esau's going to be there. That night, Jacob takes his two wives, all their, their entourage, and they cross over the Jabbok. And then, interestingly enough, Jacob crosses back by himself. He says, I need to be alone. I need to be alone with the Lord. You know, the Lord spoke to him when he was alone in the desert before. He says, I need to be alone with the Lord. And uh, he wrestled all night. With the Lord. I can't remember whether, you, you want to, yeah, okay, I did put it in there. I didn't know whether. Uh, in the book of Hosea, it tells us in what sense he battled with the Lord. Uh, he says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel, the messenger, and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. God found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. With him and through him gave promises that affect us. The Jews are saying there. How did Jacob wrestle? This was not a boxing match. It was something far more difficult than a boxing match. All those pictures you've seen of Jacob wrestling with an angel. Listen, it was much more than that. Much more strenuous physically, mentally, spiritually. He battled all night long in prayer. He battled through this thing. And all night long, he was saying, well, you know, uh, God says, God meets him and says, let me handle it. And he says, yes, yes, I'm going to let you handle it. But I, I, all right, but, but how about if I just, maybe if I, maybe I could just tell him, okay, I'll, I'll let you deal with Esau, Lord. But I was thinking, if you just help me to make him believe this story, and the Lord will not relent 
You just hand it to me. Oh, absolutely, I'm trusting you for this. But I was thinking maybe if I... He's addicted to scheming so that even though he doesn't like it, yet it's his first recourse when he has a need. So, God will not relent because he's absolutely committed to changing Jacob. Now it's almost dawn. Time really does exist, you know. Esau's coming. Every minute that goes by, Esau's getting closer. You know, it's not like, you know, we'll just freeze things and you can pray over this for six or seven days. No. Esau's going to be there in the morning. And this needs to be dealt with. You know, time really does exist. And so God finally says, you know, well, in the battle, before he speaks to him, he, he, in the heat of the battle, God reaches down and touches his hip, and his hip joint is thrown out. You know, this idea that God was trying to leave and Jacob wouldn't let him leave is so totally upside down. God blesses. God said one time to Abraham, that in blessing I will bless you. What does that mean? That means while I'm out doing my job, which is blessing, I'll bless you. And he comes to bless Jacob, and Jacob says, I'm willing to take some of the blessing if we can just sort of you know, shape it up my way. God says, no, all or none. Right, right, you're the boss, I'm not. But let me give you a little advice. No. Well, how about if I just, you bless me, you help me out, you change Esau, and I'll just put in my little two cents worth by, it's not going to work that way. And finally, finally the Lord says, that's the end. You know, you want to you wanna do this on your own? Fine, do it on your own. Uh, you know, I won't let him kill you. You'll have to learn this lesson again, you know. And finally, Jacob breaks. He says, okay, all right, I give up. Bless me. Help me. And God says, this is the turning point. God tells him, your name is not Jacob any longer, the schemer, the manipulator, the usurper, but Israel. Because, he says, you've wrestled with God and won. And won? How did he win? He gave up. He gave in. How did he win? What do you mean he won? Well, uh, the key to this is that winning is giving up to the Lord. I was a brand new believer, maybe maybe five, six months old in the Lord. Went to a Bible study being taught by a guy who was, uh, uh, I don't know, president of a Bible school or something, you know, had, you know. I was impressed. And uh, he starts teaching this Bible study and he says, uh, the most important truth that we will ever learn in our walk with the Lord, and I'm thinking, oh boy, give me a pencil, a piece of paper, I'm going to write this down, I'm going to be way ahead of everybody else who got saved at the same time as me. I'm going to know the secret. You know, I mean, this is so great. The most important truth that you will ever learn in your walk with God is God is smarter than us. And I went, oh, I knew that before I was saved. You know, throw the piece of paper out. 
you know, I've been saved now for 40-some years. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that the most important truth you will ever know is that God is smarter than you. Smarter than you. And that's what Jacob finally decided that night. It's a little hard to believe because Jacob has a lot of confidence in his ability, but he says, okay, by faith I'm going to believe that you're smarter than me. And he won because he lost. Israel means, literally, God wins. Now, it also means prevailing or ruling through God, so it's legitimate that it's translated sometimes prince with God because it's ruler with God. But the most basic sense is God prevails. When we give up and we say, okay, you win. I'll do it your way. You're smarter than I am. Then we win because God prevails. And what does that look like? Well, the sun came up, the Bible says, and what you saw was you saw Jacob limping. He was limping. <laughs> Ever after, he had to walk with a cane. Jacob never was able again to walk wholly on his own. The lesson he learned there was dependence. <laughs> you know how the story goes from here. You know, you know what happens here. It's still Jacob. We still see uh, areas where Jacob peeking out of Israel's eyes, but he never is wholly the same after this. His walk is permanently affected. By the way, the name of the brook that he crossed was Jabbok. He crossed over Jabbok with the family, and he went back, wrestled with God all night in prayer. Then he crossed Jabbok again, never to go back. You know what the word Jabbok means? Emptying. Emptying. He gave up and God prevailed. Okay, I can't do this one. Well, he prevailed because God prevailed. Wow. What a glorious thing. So he emptied himself of his schemes and his tricks and his maneuvers and his calculations and God prevailed. Now you know what happened. Esau showed up. Oh, by the way, Isaac, excuse me, not Isaac, uh, Israel, Jacob, put himself in front of his wife and kids and so on, put himself out front. This is the man who was running away all the time. This time, he'd already said, we'll divide up into two camps so that if Esau falls on this camp, you guys will be able to escape and so on. But now, he goes out front. Because the first one that's going to bite the sword is me. And Esau comes and he's ready. Okay, Lord, I'm in your hand. Throws himself on the ground. Says, I blew it. I was wrong. You deserve the right to the firstborn. I don't. And Esau comes over and grabs him and picks him up and hugs him. Isn't this great? He was worried about it all night and God had it under control. What would have happened if Jacob had said, no, I'll take care of it myself? I don't know. I don't know. That's a chapter that was never written. But God worked 
there because Jacob was willing to say, okay, Lord, it's yours. Well, God's not going to stop working in Jacob. There's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more things he does. He still, you know, you still see, uh, sometimes it's Israel, sometimes it's Jacob, you know. You still see Jacob as a trickster sometimes. They're hard habits to break. But it's never the same. It's never the same because God has said he'll change him and he won't give up. God said, I took you from the waste howling wilderness and I'm going to teach you to suck honey out of the rock and get the best out of hard times whether you like it or not. Because he said, I'm not going to leave you until I've done that which I promised you. Okay. What's that have to do with us? Well, give me the next slide here. This is an interesting verse here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his what? His purpose. We know this verse. That verse means become a Christian, everything's good, right? No. No, it doesn't say everything's good. It says God will use even the horrible, difficult circumstances that are like flinty rock, He'll use them to accomplish his purpose for your good. But what's his purpose? Oh, we lost it. Oh, lost it again. We may never find out. There it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know what God's doing? He's conforming you and I to the image of his son. That is, he's working in us to make us more like Jesus. The Lord Jesus went, well, let's back up. The Lord Jesus came down from heaven. The word made manifest human flesh, walked among us, was tempted in everything, the same way, in the same genre as you and I. And then he went voluntarily to the cross, innocent himself, and there died on the cross to pay the price for my stupidity and rebellion and stubbornness and sin. And then, after he had paid the price to buy me, he rose physically from the dead to collect the purchased possession. He says, okay, now, that's mine. She's mine. He's mine. And he saves us in order to use us and in order to prepare us for eternity. (laughs) This is not based on anything we did. It's based on God's promise that I will do what I've said I'm going to do and you and I won't give up until I've got it done. I've saved you. I've made you my child. And now... I'm going to toughen you up. I'm going to teach you about me. I'm going to teach you how to serve. You're going to be my servant. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use you. And I'm getting you ready for eternity. I don't know what we have ahead for us for eternity. I mean, the Bible tells us some things. It must be tremendous. 
because he's using all of this right up to the last day of our lives to get us ready for what's ahead. Oh, beloved, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, every path has its first step. The first step on this one is you say yes to the Lord Jesus. You say, I want you to be the king and master and ruler and Lord of my life. I'm not the boss. You are. I give up. That's the first step. You know what the second step is? What's this the third? It's another yes. Guy defined discipleship one time as, or I guess it was actually salvation. He said, salvation is, or the Christian life is, a big yes to Jesus, followed by a whole lifetime of smaller yeses. That's what Jacob learned. That's what you're learning. That's what I'm learning. And God will not stop until he's accomplished.